Hi everyone, David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice. Our summer hiatus continues and we're going to take you back to episode 74. This is my interview with Ryan King. Ryan is a researcher at the Urban Institute in Washington, one of the most respected think tanks, nonpartisan database think tanks uh, in the United States. And Ryan is going to talk to us about something that is very much on the public agenda right now, what with everybody and his brother or sister running for president, we all want to talk about mass incarceration uh, and all of those people who are in our prisons and jails. Mr. King's research shows something very interesting. The temptation for years has been to say, well, we're not going to put any more nonviolent drug offenders in jail, people uh, who don't belong in jail because they could uh, be taken care of some other way. We're not going to put them in jail or prison anymore. Well, that's fine. But his research shows that that's really the low-hanging fruit. And if you want to really impact mass incarceration, you simply have to to deal with the fact that it's not only how many people you put in prison, it's how long you put them in for. We, as a country in the United States, put people in prison for longer sentences than almost anywhere in the world. And unless we're willing to talk about those sentences, which often go to violent offenders, our prison populations won't really drop. So here is my interview with Ryan King of the Urban Institute. I hope you enjoy it. Why has the U.S. prison population grown to surpass 2 million? It's not just how many people go to prison, it's how long they stay. How much longer sentences made us the number one incarceration nation on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd, geek, and explainer of the very messy criminal justice system. Also, still lucky to have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Beginning back first in the 70s, then rapidly in the 80s, the 90s, the prison population in the United States began to explode. Now, we've discussed this here before on Criminal Injustice, back in episode 27 with Eric Sterling. He was one of the subjects of the documentary Incarceration U.S., in which he explained the role of the drug war and federal mandatory minimum drug sentences in the growth of incarceration. We've also brought you the stories of a couple of federal judges, Most recently, former federal judge Kevin Sharp in episode 55, uh, he's the one who resigned from the bench rather than impose any more of these unjust federal sentences. Now, today, at, at least on the federal level, we can look forward to more of the same. In this audio from NBC News, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announces the new administration's policy. Take a listen. This is a key part of President Trump's promise to keep America safe. If you are a drug trafficker, we will not look the other way. Attorney General Jeff Sessions is ordering prosecutors to go after the toughest possible sentences, including those with mandatory minimums, allowing for certain exceptions if approved by a U.S. attorney or assistant attorney general. 
Now, as we look back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we do see more states and the federal government prescribing prison sentences for more low-level offenders. And that does grow the prison population, no doubt. But something else was happening, too. There were changes, big changes, in not just how many people went inside, but in how long they stayed there. Our guest today has taken a fresh look at the growth of prison populations and called our attention to this other side of the equation. And he's going to share his insights with us here on this episode. Ryan King is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center, working on sentencing and corrections issues with a focus on mass incarceration. He produces empirical research on the impact of sentencing and corrections policies at the state and federal level in order to help policymakers, practitioners, and community advocates to create a fair, effective, and rational criminal justice system. Now, before joining the Urban Institute, Mr. King was the research director of the Public Safety Performance Project at the Pew Research Center, and before that, a policy analyst at the Sentencing Project. His work has been widely published and also reported on by the Associated Press, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and other media outlets. Also, I'm proud to say Mr. King attained his bachelor's degree at the University of Pittsburgh. And he's the primary author of the Urban Institute's report, A Matter of Time, The Causes and Consequences of Rising Time Served in America's Prisons. It's a really important and, frankly, visually stunning document, and we'll put up a link to it on our website. Ryan King, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks for having me, David. I'm happy to be here. Great. Now, take us back to the 70s and 80s. Uh, describe the changes that happened back then that began to to, to uh, move mass incarceration forward. Well, as many of your listeners um, may know, there's a, there's a pretty widely distributed um, graphic that shows the prison population in the United States from about 1925 to the current day. And if you look at that, it's from 1925 to about 1972, it was pretty level. And then all of a sudden, you see this big spike um, from the 70s all the way to 2009, um, the prison population grew for the better part of 40 years. And it really um, did spike up big, didn't it? A huge spike, yeah. For for those who haven't seen it, it is a, it's a very dramatic image. Um, it is it is for, for as I said for 40 plus years flat, and then this this big spike. Um, and you know, unless you believe that there is a you know, solely driven by a, a major uh, unprecedented crime wave, um, you have to think that there are other factors at work. And we've had, you know, a decades now of research that have been able to identify that that growth was not a function of, of crime and the criminal justice system merely responding to more people committing crime, but in fact was a, was a predictable result of, of deliberate policy changes that were intended to send more people to prison, keep them there longer than any time in the past. And so what we saw was a prison population go from you know, a few hundred thousand to to uh, well over a million, um, which is where we stand uh, to this day. Right. Now we're over two million. So we start sending more people to prison, uh, but there's more longer sentences as well. And sentences are determined by a number of different things, right? I mean, it's always been the case that we looked at the person's criminal history, but all of a sudden that began began to count for a lot more, didn't it? 
Yeah, so there, I mean, some of this is a function of a, a, a belief in the early 1970s um, in, framed by the words, nothing works. Um, so up until the 1970s, there was a real belief that, that people who committed crime could be rehabilitated. There was a, a lot of effort in, the, in worlds of psychology to sort of understand human behavior and, and to, to cure. And there were actually people in the late 60s who used to believe that there will, there will be a day not too far away where we will no longer have prisons. Um, when in fact uh, the complete opposite happened, we sort of flipped the switch and and really resorted to to incarceration because there was just there was frankly a belief that um, by by politicians and others that we were too lenient, sentences weren't long enough, um, people were allowed out on parole um, for short sentences, um, and people who were allowed to to repeatedly um, commit offenses get very short sentences back out in the community to to reoffend. And, and there so was the, there was no saw, there was no sense that rehabilitation was ever happening, right? That at that point, I think there was a real abandonment. And I think if you look around at, at prison systems now, um, what what passes for rehabilitation within within prisons is is um, is very limited. Um, I think for the for the most part, there was a, a real belief and, and focus on both deterring crime, both in the in the public, um, as well as with individuals by having very harsh sentences and in, incapacitating people, having people locked up so that they um, they're not out in the community, uh, and that became the real focus of the of, of the correctional system. And so, what we saw were sentencing laws that sent people for away for longer. We saw sentencing enhancements for people who had prior criminal history, may have served a sentence in prison if they came back a second time. Time, that their sentence would be longer this time around, um, and then really restrictive back-end um, release policies, either fully abolishing parole for individuals at the, at the back-end so that they had to serve a minimum of, of 85% of their prison sentence, um, or greatly, greatly limiting how much time individuals can earn off of their sentence at the back-end. And so all these things contributed to a growing length of stay in prison and a growing prison population. So let's talk about what you found you uh, had some great graphics in this report. If everybody was getting sort of standard short to medium sentences as in the past, you know, two to five years, something like that, if people were constantly going in, even a growing number were going in, but they were getting these kind of expected moderate sentences of the past, you'd have a relatively stable population. Isn't that right? Right. I mean, very simply put, the prison population is a function of how many people go in and how long they stay there. And so if you think about it as a people coming in the front door or going out the back door. And so if you have the similar amount of people coming in in a year that are going out, then you're going to have a pretty stable system. And so for a big part of the prison population, um, there are those individuals who are admitted. They serve an average of two, two and a half years, and then they come back out in the back end. Um, so those individuals are coming in and out. And when you have that steady flow, you have you have a relative stability within the prison population. Now, if you have another part of that prison population that are serving very long sentences that are stacking up, they don't come in as frequently as the short sentences, but they stay for decades. Um, and the, and with each passing year, that length of stay gets longer and longer and longer. They begin to stack up within the prison population. And so the dynamic is that on any given year, more people are coming in for shorter sentences, for less serious, less serious crimes, drug and property crimes. Um, but the uh, stacking effect 
over the course of years for people serving longer sentences really is having a profound impact on the prison population, one that I don't think we really had uh, an appreciation for until we cut the numbers the way we did and were able to, to put this analysis out there. Yeah, and I really love your metaphor of the stacking effect because when you look at these graphics, you see the lines actually stacking up and then you watch how that draw, how that drives the graph upward instead of sort of letting it kind of proceed going upward a little bit or staying stable, it really does uh, show that spike. So we, we were putting more people in for the, for the you know, kind of standard medium to short sentences, but it was those long sentences. But we've always had long sentences, right? I mean, what was different about these long sentences of the 70s, 80s, and then 90s? So I think the biggest thing is, too, sentences are, we have always had long sentences, but I think we have more now on the books, um, more types of offenses that can result in people serving long sentences. I mentioned the enhancements for people with prior criminal offenses, enhancements for the presence of a weapon, enhancements for uh, selling drugs within a thousand feet of a school district. So our, our criminal code has all of these different ways in which sentence length can increase. And then on the back end, um, up until the 1970s, there was a lot more what were called indeterminate sentences. So you might get a sentence of five to life for an offense. You'd go in, you'd serve a minimum of five years, and then after five years, it essentially would be up to a parole board in the back end um, to review your uh, both the underlying offense, your conduct since you've been incarcerated, participation in programming, overall behavior, etc., and then use those uh, factors to make a determination whether you should be released from prison. So for those folks who follow the rules and did really well, they may get out uh, from a five-to-life sentence at five and a half years. For, for other folks, it may be 20 years. Um, so it really truly was indeterminate on the back end, and that, that uh, led to a lot of um, potential problems. On the, on the one end, there was a belief by, by many that um, people were being treated too leniently and, and being let out too early. Um, and then for others, there was also a belief that, the, you know, unsurprisingly, there was racially disparate outcomes, um, that individuals um, of color were being treated differently and were serving longer because the, dis- the discretion of a parole board um, may, not, uh, uh, may, may be privileging um, the, uh, those people who were applying who were white. So we saw th- th- those, uh, the impact of some of those policies led to a real movement toward determinate sentencing which is essentially to um, really kind of standardize the criteria for release. So it may be that in a given state, uh, you get for every 30 days of good behavior, you, you earn five days off of your ultimate, um, your ultimate sentence on the back end, or participating in a program, you can earn 10 days off per 30 days served, that kind of thing. Um, up right. to a certain point, so, mm-hmm. that, so that individuals then... So at that point now, with it being more determinant, there are less options and flexibility for people on the back end serving very long sentences, and thus we see the, the overall length of stay for people increasing. And so there's just fewer ways for them to get out at any, in any way that might be termed early. Do we also have a contribution to these longer sentences because people return uh, to prison by violating their probation or parole? Sure. So in one of the, the – we talk a lot about the growth of the prison population. Um, there's also was a significant growth at the same time of people on probation and parole in the community supervision population. And while you're on probation or parole, you have, you have certain um, requirements that you need to meet. And if you don't meet those requirements, you can be violated, um, what's called a technical violation, um, and sent back to prison. And so uh, absolutely in, in the past – um, as people are out on parole, if they are, say, they have to pass drug tests, they can't be around certain people or in certain neighborhoods, and they violate those requirements, they can be sent back to prison. They end up going back. Can, 
Right, it can contribute to a longer length of stay overall than they might have served in the past. So let's put a let's put a face on it when we talk about long sentences. Tell us about the case of Weldon Angelos. So this is a this is a federal level case, and it's really it's a remarkable case. It's gotten a fair amount of attention, but it's worth um, sharing because it, it really illustrates the impact in this case of enhancements. This is an individual. Um, who was sentenced in the federal system. Uh, the primary um, offense was uh, um, selling uh, marijuana to a confidential informant. Um, at the time of the sale of the drugs, there was also um, the confidential informant testified to the fact that there was a firearm present. Um, in one case, it was in a car. In another case, the, the um, informant alleged that it was uh, an ankle holster um, in a firearm. Um, and then the, the third one was during um, subsequent to the search of his house when he was arrested. Um, so the overall offense itself, he ended up being served. Um, he ended up being sentenced to 55 years. So he got three counts of possession of a firearm and furtherance of a drug trafficking crime. That's a, a federal, um, uh, a federal offense. And so what what that does is the first offense is five years. The second offense is 25 years, and then another 25 years for the third offense. So here's an individual who, in three successive buys from a comp- three successive sales to a confidential informant, um, that eventually led to the single arrest and the sentence. Um, each each uh, purchase by the confidential informant was counted as a separate. Um, a separate offense for the purpose of sentencing, and this individual got 55 years. All of that for the for the for the firearms, the, the drug crimes um, themselves, for the marijuana were, and I believe money laundering also were were able um, to be uh, put aside. Now, this individual would have served um, guidelines around 78 to 97 months. Um, um, but then gets these 55-year mandatory minimum because of the gun enhancement. So it gives you a sense about how, in the past, sentencing length might have been one thing. In the case of the federal system, they have guideline levels that give you what um, the the sentence this individual was supposed to serve. Um, but then you have these enhancements on top, and those were those were a function of of a lot of the tough on crime policies that we saw in, in the in the 80s and 90s. And in that case, that ended up resulting in Mr. Angelos um, being sentenced to 55 years. He was eventually. Um, granted a reduction um, in sentence and released in uh, 2016. And just um, just in case but, our our listeners are curious, uh, this the 70 to 90 months idea. If you do the the math slowly, as I do, uh, that's not even close to 55 years. 55 years? Yeah. No, that's not even close. What five and eight years? Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, you know what what puzzles me about this beyond just the stacking effect and how this is driving prison populations upward and upward and upward, is that it's really not necessary from a public safety point of view. Uh, one of the true treasures of, uh, of Pittsburgh uh, is a guy named Al Blumstein. He's been on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon for years. And it, part of his lifetime of work has been to point out that the vast majority of criminals, men of course, they age out of criminal activity. Uh, they're, they're active if they're criminals in their late teens, 20s, maybe 30s. But by the time they get into their 40s, I mean everybody realizes it's kind of a young man's game and they're just not going to be doing that stuff despite whatever you might see on TV or in the movies. And so these people end up a 55-year sentence for a 25-year-old guy. I mean we're going to have that person in prison for years and years past 
any potential crime doing years. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, the purpose of a lot of this, uh, of incarceration, there are, there are a number of factors. And I, I mentioned earlier deterrence, either deterring that individual from ever committing crime again or deterring the public by knowing how serious punishment can be. Um, there's a rehabilitation component. There's an in- incapacitation component, um, keeping an individual locked up. And then I think the one that, that's really tricky for us is the retribution component, the real punishment, which is just punishing a person for the sake of punishing them. And when we can quantify the others, the retribution one is, is challenging. And so for a lot of these cases we're talking about, these are individuals that um, – you know, offer uh, pose very little public safety threat, and the more time they spend in prison, the less public safety threat um, that they pose. And they're still locked up for for decades beyond any kind of actual public safety impact. Um, now, there may be an argument that the society has determined that those individuals want we need to lock them up just because they did something wrong and bad, and we still want right, to punish they just, them. They can't be um, in society anymore. Period. Right. But I think, you know, the the problem with this, I mentioned the indeterminate determinant sentencing. One of the problems with the determinant sentencing as it is now is it does not have an opportunity for an individual to get a really meaningful review of their sentence at, a, at, a, at another point down the line. Um, so that's what parole offered. For an individual who did something when they're 22 and at 27, they can be reviewed um, to see how they've changed. Um, that is, that is a, a valuable function of parole. In, in a lot of these determined situations, we don't have that. And so an individual, if, you're served, if you get a 30-year sentence when you're 22, you're going to have to serve that thing out before you're going to have an opportunity. And you may have uh, participated in every program and gotten a Ph.D. and been a wonderful mentor and, and a real model individual while you're incarcerated by the time you're 35, but there's no opportunity or mechanism for you, for you to come out. And I think this is a conversation that we have not really had as, as a society. And the research is really clear that what's much better to prevent crime is the certainty of apprehension versus That's the severity right. of the punishment. That's right. And so what we're doing here is ratcheting, and we keep ratcheting up the severity when the research keeps showing you that severity doesn't work. If you want to prevent crime, you want to protect public safety, certainty of apprehension, short, Swift. This is where people may have right. Heard of Swift, Swift and sure punishment. There you go. Right. That that is is the approach that has data supporting it. Um, not to mention, frankly, prevention. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, but sort of after after things have happened, um, the, the idea of bringing down these these incredibly um, extreme punishments on individuals with no sort of consideration of how their lives have changed, I think, is is not supported by the data or evidence, and it's really um, it has incredibly problematic. Um, Uh, social implications. Let's take a quick break here. This is Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Ryan King from the Urban Institute, and we're talking about long sentences and their effect on the prison population. Stay with us. You've got questions about criminal justice, and we've got the answers. And we can't give you legal advice, but if you want to know more about something you heard on the show, maybe something you read in the news, or just something you've always wondered about that sprawling mess we call the criminal justice system, leave a message with your question at 412-407-3389. You just might hear the answer in a future episode. Be sure to include your first name and where you're calling from, You can also submit your questions or feedback online by visiting criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Again, the phone number for your questions is 412-407-3389, 412-407-3389. 
Hi, David Harris on Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Ryan King of the Urban Institute. Uh, You can see his new report up. It is linked on our website. Uh, And we've been talking about the effect of long, long sentences on the growth of the prison population. Uh, Ryan, let's go to the last five to six years, because really for the first time in this decades of growth, we see reform efforts. And we see them in some interesting places, Texas, Alabama, Arkansas, red states, uh, as well as some blue ones. I wonder whether it is possible to do real prison reform uh, of the type that we a lot of us would like to see without addressing the question that you have uncovered. So let, tell me about the state of Alabama. I think it's a great case study. Yeah, so uh, it's really – we're pushing beyond five and six years, about a decade of really sustained criminal justice reform across the board. Um, and as you mentioned, deep red states are not, not necessarily the ones that you would think would be, would be the leaders. And in many of these states, uh, Georgia and South Dakota are two that come to mind. Um, they not only uh, participated in um, legislative sessions where there was criminal justice reform, but then did it again and again afterwards. And governors in, in both states really seeing that as a um, as a, as a foundation of of their administration. So that's an that's an incredible change and, and one worth worth really appreciating. Um, what what a what a um, departure it had been from the from the prior forty or so years that, that we've been discussing. Um, but you're right that a lot of the focus of those recent years has been on lower level, less serious offenses, primarily drugs, um, some property. So we've seen some defelonization of drug possession. We've seen changing some felony theft threshold for property crimes. We've seen um, some focus on, you mentioned earlier, community supervision and revocations to prison. We've seen some efforts to try to put in place intermediate sanctions or graduated sanctions to keep people in the community and not heading back to prison. Those are all critically important, but they're, yes. they're really, they're, they're not the destination. They're sort of a first step on a, on a long journey. Right. And Let's do affirm that that stuff really is important and it's making a difference in lives. But the Alabama example that you're about to tell us, that really shows you what you have to do in order to affect populations, doesn't it? Right, and I think that the the important issue now is that for for some folks new to the issue, there may be a belief that you know we've done these reforms the last couple of years, we're done, we fixed this problem. And the reality is that, as I said, this is a first step on a, on a very long journey. And Alabama is a, a good example of that. Um, that's a state where they've actually um, have bent the admissions for the the shorter stays in prison in recent years. They've actually achieved what you would want to see, which is a reduction in people coming into prison for lower level, less serious offenses. All They're, good. Yeah, that's great. Down. Yeah, that's great. Um, so that's all really good. The prison population itself has remained flat during that time. And the reason why is while they were reducing people on the shorter end, we were seeing that stacking effect continue because the reforms that they were putting in place weren't touching the length of stay, weren't touching people who were serving long sentences. And so those individuals every year, been in for 19 years, then 20, then 21, and this continued to stack up. And Alabama is a great example because it shows you that um, if you try, if you stop your efforts on the on the lower level, less serious reforms and the admission, and don't push for the bigger, more sustainable um, uh, policy reforms around length of stay, you're not going to be able to achieve the really meaningful reductions in in the prison population that a lot of people are are, are shooting for. It is a real policy question that we need to address. Yeah, and so what's happening is they're making reforms on the low end, but they're at least canceled out by failing to make reforms uh, of the longer sentences. What explains the unwillingness, do you think, to tackle the long sentence question? 
Well, I'm sure I'm sure you and your listeners can can probably guess it is this is a politically challenging issue period full stop. Um even with the sort of mom and apple pie low level drug offenses that I think we as a society have increasingly grown um frustrated with the way that they've been treated by That is quite a sentence. But, I just want to say mom and apple pie drug sentences. So well and and and, that, and I'll tell you that that shows how far we've come in 25 years. That's right. Years it sure so, does. It sure does. Where, um where where most people say, oh well, I'm on board for for um, diversion for low level, you know, first time marijuana smokers, this or that. Well, the reality is, um, those are not the big drivers of the prison population. They're there critically important, and we have we have support for them. Um, but I think our challenge for those who work on this issue and have been working on it for a long time is to get to educate lawmakers. So law, a lot of lawmakers are new to this issue because remember, they only knew criminal justice policy. What they knew for the last forty years was. You know, something happens, you, you, it only goes one way, which is up, right? You make punishments harsher, there's a high-profile crime, you change the statute to punish whatever that crime was that happened so it doesn't happen again, right? That's, right the one-way so ratchet. The idea of criminal justice reform, right, is a one-way ratchet. This is, this is new, and I think our obligation is to say that, yeah, these are all really critically important steps. But as much as attention as you pay to who goes to prison, the admissions piece, we also need to be paying toward the proportionality piece. So there's a lot of talk about cost-benefit analysis, right, and what a return on investment are we getting for putting somebody in prison versus keeping them in the community and giving them substance abuse treatment, for example. What about having that conversation to say what kind of return on investment are we getting for somebody who serves 10 years versus 5, 5 years versus 2? Those, those conversations aren't happening right now, and I think for lawmakers, um, it is already for a lot of lawmakers. I don't want to discount um, the political courage that a lot of lawmakers in a lot of these deep red states, a lot of conservative lawmakers have stuck their neck out and pushed for these reforms in the Georgias and the Texas and the Mississippis and Louisianas and Oklahomas of the world. Um, but that, they, that, can, that needs to, they need to see that victory um, and see the value it has and ideally see when these policies pass, the sky doesn't fall. And then, okay, maybe it's not as bad as, as I was worried and then continue to push for the reforms we need. So it is an incremental long-term gain uh, long long term game that that we're dealing with right now, um, but it's one where I think we need to continue to 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 be put putting out the information and communicating with with policymakers so that they understand what the what the impact of these policies have been and a pathway out of them moving forward. So one thing you always hear, and I know you've heard it, is we want to save prison beds for those who are the most violent offenders. How do we get past that, uh, and where do we want to go? So it's a two-part question. How do we deal with that inquiry? Is that a legitimate question? Is that a legitimate thing to want? And once we do that, what do you want to see happen? So I think for a lot of people, when you know, we say we want to preserve prison space for the, for the most violent uh, individuals, um, what people are really saying is, I want to feel safe. I want to feel safe in my community. I want to feel safe on the street. Um, and for most people, what that means is prison, because we as a society have made, sent a very clear message over the last 50 years that uh, the solution to crime is prison. The, the data don't support it, but the politicians certainly have, have been pushing that for, for, um, for the, you know, at this point, pushing 50 years. Uh, what we really need, I think, is, as I mentioned, you know, we, we've got a developing knowledge and an understanding about what works for um, people with substance abuse. We've got diversion. We've got community-based sanctions. We've got other things that exist to keep people 
um, around drug and property crimes out of prison and in the community one way or the other. So those those options exist, and there's a website your listeners can go on called crimesolutions.gov that will tell you all of the most rigorously evaluated empirical studies of what works and what doesn't work. Um, so when a lawmaker comes up to you and says, all right, I'm on board, we lock up too many people for drug offenses, what else should I do? I can sit down with that person and give them, you know, 10 different options that, that may fit the, the needs of their state. If that same lawmaker comes back and says, all right, you've convinced me 40-year sentences are too long for, the, for this or 20-year or, or sentences are too long for that, what do uh-huh. we do? What, what can I do in my state? That's where the options are much uh, fewer. There are far fewer options. And um, in the crimesolutions.gov, you'll see a lot about drugs and property. You'll see some around violence prevention, around gangs and juveniles in particular, but not nearly the same depth and breadth of research. And sure. so one of the things we really need to do is build out that space um, and to understand. So there are programs that exist and, and work out there, Common Justice out of New York City, which is used as a restorative justice model. There's uh, Cure Violence, which is an effort to, to um, as violence interrupters, to prevent, prevent violence in, in, um, in certain communities. There are, there are efforts out there that work um, to prevent and to address violence in ways that are not simply just locking people up or hiring hiring more police and prosecutors. Um, but we need to elevate those stories. We need to, you know, what I had wished, this is an administration that said repeatedly that um, they're committed to reducing violent crime. And yes. I, what I wish that had been followed up with was, and what we're going to do is commit a billion dollars to go out and invest in 25 different potentially promising programs and interventions out there in different different cities and different settings with different modalities to really understand what works, because we don't want as a society to just be resorting to prison. And when somebody says uh, we want to preserve prison space for, for violent folks, what they're saying is essentially, I don't want to deal with this issue. Um, I don't want to deal with this population, so I'm just going to um, I'm just going to lock them up and throw away the key. And that, that's not a, um, it is not a defensible approach from a number of reasons, not the least of which is that the data have shown that this is not protecting public safety, right? Violence, uh, it's amazing to me, for example, that you look in a city like Chicago, which has been highly publicized for, mm-hmm. for sure. um, the rates of violent crime and homicide in there, uh, and the response is, well, you know, we need to have a a joint federal, uh, state, local task force. We need to be hiring more cops and prosecutors. Like these, this is the approach that we've been using for decades, and then locking people up and having sentencing enhancements for guns, etc. Uh, and and this is the approach we've been using for decades. And we haven't really seen the kind of public safety impact that we want to see. Why wouldn't the response be like, "Hey, wh- uh, why am I doubling down on the status quo when I see a problem?" As opposed to saying, "Like, we need we need other options here. We need to start to think about other ways." And and um, we need there's a lot of investment. This is an area where the federal government could really lead with um, investment in that research, level of investment yeah. in research and pilots. And I'm not talking about uh, you know. Academic research that takes decades to, to hit people's shelves. I'm talking about you know we, we know enough to to do program design and to run really rigorous studies in, in cities and learning on the fly. Um, you know it's, this is just too important of an issue for us to ignore. Ryan King is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center. Thanks very much for being with us on Criminal Injustice. Thank you very much for having me, David. I really enjoyed it. Let's 
wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the Miami Herald and the ABA Journal Online concerns lawyer Jose Camacho of Miami. Yes, Florida wins again. One aspect of lawyer Camacho's practice, like that of so many others, was to take care of settlements for their clients. Now, when a case settles, there's a certain amount of T crossing and I dotting that has to be done. Some of the settlements that lawyer Camacho handled, again, nothing uncommon about this, they were structured settlements, settlements that would be paid out over time. Now, the state of Florida requires that any structured settlement needs the approval of a judge. Okay, good. So you get the judge to sign off. Well, one day, Judge Marsha Garcia Wood noticed something funny about an order with her signature on it. It seemed to have a date when she knew she was out of town. Hmm. This led to the discovery that lawyer Camacho had forged the signatures of at least eight Broward County judges on these structured settlement agreements. Well, as you can imagine, judges take the forging of their own signatures very seriously. Lawyer Camacho was charged and has now been sentenced to 364 days in jail. Probably means a year minus a day he spent inside when he was originally arrested. Plus, 10 years of probation. In a way, though, the part of the story that sticks out to me was lawyer Camacho's explanation for why he forged those signatures. He said that he had a high-volume practice and he, quote, didn't want to wait for sign-offs from backlog judges. Ah, well, I see. So it's kind of the judge's fault, too. At least they bear some of the blame, right? Not exactly what you want on the record when it's time for sentencing in front of a judge. This reminds me of when one of my kids was learning to drive. He had a permit, but we discovered, I won't tell you how, that he had taken to, well, taking the family car out by himself during the night when we were asleep. When I confronted him, he said, but dad, I needed the practice and you just weren't taking me out enough. Yeah, really, he said that. When I stopped laughing, I took his permit. Long time before he got it back. That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that is it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Find us, like us, and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts and also on all your podcast apps. It really does help people to find us. Share Criminal Injustice. Use our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, to give us suggestions for guests and topics for future episodes and point us to stories of lawyers behaving badly. Thank you. I am David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments. Or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389 or online, criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Next time, private prisons hold over 100,000 people in the U.S. They provide flexibility, but what really happens when punishment is about profit? 
That's on the Criminal Injustice Podcast. Find it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>